Alan Bass is an American poet, author, and teacher. This is Alan Bass. I'm Duncan Gamey. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Great. I'm here with Ellen Bass. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I, I always, I, I've had a few poets on the podcast at this point, and I really like talking to them. And partly because um, I was talking to, uh, I bought a camera recently, and I was talking to this person who owns the camera shop, and he's a photographer, and he just got into photography like three years ago. And now he has like a photography magazine, a photography shop, um, and he's sustaining sort of a, a life uh, off the income of this. And it struck me as I was talking to this person that uh, this is very unlike the experience of your average poet. Um, <laughs> and I was curious um, what when you first launch into this into this life uh, and say, okay, I'm going to dedicate my sort of creative or professional life primarily to poetry. Um, what was that decision like? Were you, was it a time where it felt like, oh, maybe you could make a living off of this? Did you not care? Um, or the things that once you started going, you went, oh my God, if I had known this in the beginning, maybe I would have made different decisions. Like what, what brought you to make this leap? Well, I I made the leap when I was very young, and um, I didn't really think a lot about the financial aspect of it. I didn't think anything at all about it. I no. just figured that I would have uh, another job, and that that other job, whatever it would be, would, would be what would support me. And that the important thing was that it not take up so much time and energy that I didn't have time to write. So I just saw, I, I never saw writing poetry as a career. I saw it as yeah. a as a vocation, as something that um, just like maybe somebody who had a spiritual practice wouldn't necessarily think that they were going to make a living by it. It was just the way they wanted to live. And so when I was very young, I would just have part-time jobs that would give me enough time to write. Yeah. And then it turned out uh, very unexpectedly, but wonderfully, that I could make a living through teaching poetry. And I began, you know, way back in my 20s, I began teaching poetry workshops just out of my living room, putting up flyers. This is way before, um, you know, anyone had even imagined anything like the internet, uh, but there, there were Xerox machines and I could uh, make a flyer and, you know, put it up in laundromats and bookstores and all around. And wow. people, people came, they came. And I always kept thinking, when is this going to break down? Uh, when, right. when are they going to stop coming? Uh, and I, I, really, for the first couple decades, I was nervous that they would they would stop coming. But after a while, I thought, well, they haven't stopped coming yet. So, oh. um, and then things just just progressed. And um, so, you know, I'm I'm I, I I've 
been married twice. I'm still married to my wife. Uh, and in, in both marriages, I wound up being the primary breadwinner and raising a family on poetry. So wow. it, it, it's worked out very well. Absolutely. Yeah. When, when you first started having these like workshops um, or these classes, and, and I know you're still doing uh, stuff like this, and now you do have the benefit of the internet. Um, I want to talk to you at some point about this living room craft talks that you're doing. Um, but when you first started doing this, did people show up like, well, what kind of person showed up? Were, were they just taking it on faith that you had something to teach? Yeah, they sure were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's they. I had uh, I moved from um, the East Coast to where I live now, Santa Cruz County. Uh, I live in town now in Santa Cruz, but when I when I first lived here, I lived in a tiny little town up in the mountains and in the redwoods called Boulder Creek. That was is a forty five minute windy drive from the town of Santa Cruz. And that first night, 14 people showed up. Uh, one of them got stuck and had to walk partway because I was down a dirt road and her car went partly off the road and she mm. didn't want to miss the class. So she figured she would deal with getting it out. Afterwards. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but but people, people just drove in the dark up that windy road and... They didn't know what they were getting into, but Santa Cruz back then was, you know, much, you know, now it's like so many other places, it's gotten much crowded, more crowded, it's expensive. Uh, you know, back then there were a lot of artists and just an incredible openness to poetry. And mm. people came who had never written before, people came who had been writing their own poetry for a while, but just were excited to get into a, a group. Uh, and it was very varied who came. Yeah. The, when you talk about the the expensiveness or like living costs, and that seems to gel with what I've heard a lot of people say. Um, like I'm, I'm in Los Angeles right now, and I've talked to people who they said they had apartments downtown back in the 80s for like, 300 bucks a month and i mean obviously there's inflation during that time but still yeah. it's it seems wild and it also seems like a lot of that that lent itself to the sort of thing that you you were to do of being like oh i'll be a poet and i'll have part-time jobs and that'll pay rent etc do you feel have you noticed like a shift in the kinds of people who do poetry or these sorts of like um uh forms of art that are not necessarily like financially uh remunerative um have you seen this where like the, the sorts of people who are doing these arts now are um i don't know is it, is it less people doing it like no, do, do, do you feel no, what i'm saying like there's an incredible renaissance in poetry uh we have i think more poets than ever we have certainly uh more diverse poets than ever yeah. and um the quality i you know there's so much poetry out there it can't all be excellent but the quality i mean there are so many excellent poets i can't you can't even read all the poets that you would 
really want to read. There's so many poets yeah. who are writing really, really good work. So the economic issues, of course, are incredibly different from back then. And people have to figure out different things that they're gonna do. And many people can't make a living through their poetry, but that isn't stopping them from writing um, extraordinarily powerful poetry. And you also mentioned um, the, the idea of this being, uh, you know, a vocation, not a career and comparing it to like a spiritual pursuit. Um, and and there, of course there are people who just abandon all worldly ties and go live in an ashram somewhere and, you know, make that dedicated their life. And there are like mathematicians, for instance, it's like a huge thing where they say, oh, this is a young person's game. Um, and they're very like, you know, feverishly trying to accomplish something before they're 40. Um, whether or not that's valid, who knows? Um, but that's their feeling. And did you ever have a a feeling like that of like, ooh, um, I got to, you know, if I'm uh, like... Again, Einstein said something like, if you don't publish uh, some scientific breakthrough by the time you're 30, it'll never happen, which isn't true. But like, that's an attitude that some people have, particularly like young people who feel the years passing by have. Um, did you ever feel that way? Do you think there's like validity to that? I don't know. How do you approach that? Well, when I began, um, there weren't so many poets as there are now um, publishing. Yeah. And I had the good fortune to easily publish my first book. And I had the incredible, incredible good fortune and gift of being able to co-edit with my mentor, Florence Howe, the anthology of women's poetry, No More Masks, which was published by Doubleday in 1970. I think, um, which was the first major anthology of women's poetry. So Florence had been my teacher uh, in college, and she asked me if I would work on this with her. And that was just, it, there are no words for what a gift that was for, you know, in my, uh, you know, I was in my early 20s, and I got a chance to do this um, major anthology with yeah. my mentor. And uh, Florence Howe's name is not that well known outside of certain circles, but she uh, went on to found the Feminist Press, which is uh, the oldest uh, still going women's press in the world. Um, I think it's about 55 years now. She is thought of as the mother of women's studies, that she really, that there was not a women's studies in, in academia before Florence. She was in contact with all of the major writers, women writers of the time, Adrian Rich and Grace Paley and uh, Audre Lorde and Tilly Olson. Um, she knew everyone. And I was just this baby poet who got to work with her. So that opened a million doors for me. And um, I was able to publish my first book. And it gave me a lot of 
confidence about being in the poetry world, then um, uh, I did some publishing and a lot of time went by and I published a couple more books, but um, I was really a lot out of the loop uh, because I was in Santa Cruz, I wasn't in New York, I wasn't connected mm -hmm. with the university. Um, and it that had a lot of advantages and a lot of disadvantages, but I wasn't, I, I, my I didn't have really clear expectations about what was going to happen in my career. Yeah. It, it, a, a lot of it, I, I had hopes uh, of becoming, you know, a better poet. Um, but I think because I didn't think of it as, uh, you know, primarily a career, I thought of it as something that I loved to do, that I wasn't focused in that kind of way that you're saying maybe some of the mathematicians were. I, I Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, was there, when, when you're, a, you said you didn't have any like expectations for this. And I feel like that's, that's got to be like the best sort of mindset to approach any sort of creative task. Um, a lot of like creativity feels like you're uh, sort of receiving something as though, as, as opposed to like willing it. And so like if you insert your ego in this process, it kind of just interrupts the flow. Um, but did you have any sort of vision of where you wanted to take your poetry, regardless of how it was, uh, was received or anything like that? Um, was there, um, did, did you, did you consciously say to yourself like, okay, I'm now capable of creating this kind of poem. I want to go deeper and maybe, you know, explore something new that hasn't been done before. Or did you also just sort of take things as they came? Yes, the latter. Um, I, I, I've managed to uh, accomplish quite a few things in my life, but I have always done it just by putting the next foot forward. Um, yeah. I, I'm not a, a long range vision person. Um, and so certainly when I sit down to write a poem, I, I'm just where I am. I don't think about goals and, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> you, you know, um, and I've never had a project, you know, like a, a book project where, um, I envy people actually who have those where, where, you know, they, they at least know what they're doing and all these poems in some way are going to work together like that. For me, it's always poem by poem, each one I have to approach on its own terms. Um, and although what I've learned in the past, I can apply to it. I can't really replicate anything that I've learned in the past. I've sometimes tried to. I've certain sometimes, you know, managed to write a poem in a certain way or with a certain process. And I think, well, that worked out well. I'm going to try that again. And that's that. It's it's kind of like every child is different. You know, every poem just is is so different. And so it's it's really always poem by poem. When I put my books together, I don't have a theme. Um, 
you know, because they're written over a certain period of time, whether it's, you know, five years or eight years or whatever, there are certain themes in my life at that time. And so those come through in the poems, but right. I, I never sit down and think, okay, I'm going to write a book now about aging or, uh, yeah. you know, it, 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 those poems will be there because that's a stage of life that I'm at. Um, I have a, a grandchild now so there's some baby poems that uh have have emerged and but i you know i don't think okay this will be the book about babies yeah <laughs> but uh it, it's it's worked out okay for me not to know where i'm going it, it seems like it's worked out fantastic um yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... it has i mean it's worked out Wait, better. I some not too many years back, I looked at my wife and I said, who, who I've known, we've been together for 40 years and I've known her for 50 years. So, you know, she's seen the whole journey. And, you know, I said, you know, did you ever think I'd be here? And she said, no. Yeah. And I said, me either. Because yeah. <laughs> I was just, you know, doing my little workshops in this sleepy beach town in california and you know no one really knew what i was doing you know um this might strike you as like a uh it's sort of off the wall analogy uh have you ever played chinese checkers yeah okay yeah so i was playing that recently with some friends and it occurred to me that what you're describing is like very similar to the sorts of strategies you could have for people who don't know chinese checkers is just um the board is like a star shape in each corner, you have 10 marbles and you're trying to get them from one side to the other. Um, and you can only have like, uh, you can jump one marble at a time um, or you move one marble at a time or you can jump marbles if they're in a straight line. Anyway, the I was trying in this game to like, look like 10 moves ahead and see exactly how to game things out. I completely lost. And the person who won was just this guy who was like, eh, you know, put a piece down, didn't really think about it. It's like, all right, this looks good. Kept moving. And I feel like that's just sort of a <clears throat> an analogy for life where things, you go far enough out into the future, it's just so complex that you can't possibly predict it. And so you need some sort of just like minimal heuristics to like, as you said, put one foot in front of the other. Um, that's a good analogy. It really is. I mean, so many of the things that I've done have just been because they have come across my radar. Um, you know, quite a few years back, uh, a psychologist and poet um, at Salinas Valley State Prison, which is about, I guess about an hour and a half from here, I can't remember exactly, um, called me up and said, would you consider teaching, uh, starting a poetry workshop here? And I said, yeah, I've always thought about that, but uh, you know, I never really, took the initiative. And so I'm really glad you're calling me. How'd you find me? And he said, oh, I just found you in a directory of poets and writers and you look like you weren't too far oh, away. Yeah. <laughs> and I went, well, great. You know, we're both in the same boat. You know, we're just yeah. kind of, uh, so um, yeah, and I did, I started that, that's still ongoing. And now we've also got poetry workshops that I started in the Santa Cruz jails. We have seven workshops a week in the various jails in Santa Cruz. Um, but 
you know, I didn't ever like really say to myself, okay, you know, this is an important need, although of course it, I thought it was, um, and I'm going to now figure out how to get there. Um, it just, it, it feels to me like a lot of things happen to me and then I, I, I try and, um, somebody, um, somebody, uh, once I was fundraising for, for someone once, um, who, who, uh, had cancer and needed treatment as many years ago. And somebody sent a small donation and she said, I always try and say yes, whenever I'm asked. And I, I really have always thought about her. And I, I realized that I do that a lot. Um, right. And, you know, I, I try and notice, I mean, I can't say yes to everything, of course, uh, but, but I really try and notice is this is this an opportunity that kind of has my name on it and uh and sometimes it does you know when i was teaching these workshops in in santa cruz back in the <clears throat> early 70s is when uh women in in one of the workshops it was all women started to talk about um having been sexually abused as a child and that uh, I, I was never abused. And so this was very new information to me. But um, to make a, a long story very short, once one person told me it was as though everybody knew they could come and tell me and in other workshops and other places, people just women just started writing their stories in in these um, workshops. They were you know, it's that was back when it wasn't in the newspaper. There weren't books. There were, you know, it wasn't right. like Oprah. You know, I mean, it was a completely, utterly different era of silence. I didn't even know that such a thing existed. That's how silent it was, and it just kept happening. And I won't go through the whole story, but it led me to. Uh, collaborate with another writer, Laura Davis, and we wrote The Courage to Heal, which um, became a guidebook for many survivors of child sexual abuse. So, you know, I never, and, and for about 10 or 12 years, that's mainly what I did was um, uh, leading workshops for survivors and doing trainings for professionals and writing this book. You know, I never planned to leave poetry and do this for a while, uh, but it was it was compelling. You know, again, it had my name on yeah. it. It just came to me, and um, it was it was very compelling. It was very gratifying. And then, after a number of years, I really needed to return to poetry. I couldn't write poetry and and do this at the same time. This yeah. was. This was not a part-time job where I no. could then write poetry. And I, I just, eventually, I just missed poetry too much. And so I, um, I eventually left that work and came back to poetry. But, you, you know, all the things that I've, so many of the things that I've done have been um, like that, where they, they kind of came to me and, uh, and, I, and I said yes. Did, did you find, because people sometimes talk about like the therapeutic value of art, and then there are sometimes people who like poo-poo that. Um, did you find when these 
like experientially when these women were like writing their stories did was it helpful for them oh god yes yeah oh yeah i mean beyond helpful um it, it is a tricky thing to talk about the therapeutic value of art so i understand the poopers um, yeah. and and can kind of speak to that aspect as well um i think that um there in these workshops and in a lot of other um other kinds of environments uh, we found that that writing i i can't speak so much about the other arts although i think that a lot would be uh, transferable, but this is the only art form I really know, that that writing is found to be incredibly helpful. In fact, uh, you know, there's so much now uh, in the medical field about, uh, uh, you know, medical narrative and narrative therapy and medicine. And I've read studies that are just extraordinary that even if the person is, is not writing directly, about their uh, about their illness or their feelings about it, or um, even if they're just writing about what happened that day, that uh, some of their uh, physical conditions improve, mm. and some of these make you know more emotional sense. Like there's certain inflammatory conditions that we know when you're under stress. Uh, you know, they're worse. And uh, when you're not, they might get better, uh, somewhat better, at least. But these were also conditions that you wouldn't expect would have an emotional component. Um, You know, like the healing of broken bones or something like that, you know, don't think, oh, yeah, if you, you know, if you relax, it's going to heal better. Or if you tell your story, it's going to heal better. But it's, it's really extraordinary. And so many things happen when we write that are different than even um, talking to a therapist, say. And one of them that I think is very interesting is that when we write, there's no one responding when you talk to someone even someone very very sympathetic they are responding Um, it may be very subtly it may be just you know the blink of their eyelids it might be facial expressions Um, they might even just be offering you encouragement in some way but but they are in a way also interrupting you're talking to yourself and when you write and and you we can't help but um, shift how we say it, at least somewhat, in response to these responses. Even sometimes I find if I'm giving a talk on Zoom um, and maybe part of my screen has my talk up on it and to the side, maybe I can see a few people who are responding. you know, I notice that if I look at people who are are have a more blank expression, um, I have to work a little harder. If I look at somebody who looks super involved, yeah. um, 
you know, then I get a little energy there. So um, when when you're writing, you don't get any of that. You, you're completely, uh, completely able to just go on your own role, whatever that is. And so what happened in the in the workshops when I was working with survivors, uh, and we weren't trying to create art. We were, we, that it was for, that was therapeutic. Yeah. Um, what, what happened was that people could go very, very deeply, very quickly because there wasn't this interaction. And um, I really found out a lot about the power of, of writing and, um, how important it was when people are, are doing this work to have a safe container because they they do go so very deep. You you talked about um, like women coming forward, and and I'm I'm curious, were, were there any like men who? Yes, after a little while there were, and and I did work with men as well uh, when we wrote the book we we knew so much more about women's experience yeah um, i had worked with so many more women it, we thought about expanding it to women and men but we were we were concerned that we might not know enough um about mm. what some possible differences might be in men's experience i mean i don't think it's greatly different because children are children right. um, but um our culture is different and so we wanted to make sure that we weren't saying anything that wasn't solid uh, because people were going to be following this advice um, you know so right. it's a huge responsibility but we did afterward publish a small book that was both for women and men um, because uh, so many men had asked us for it uh, there's there's a, a man, Mike Liu, who published a book uh, about healing from sexual abuse for men. And he was at one of our very first talks when the book first came out. And a man had raised his hand and said, well, you know, I, I need a book like this, but this is for women. And, and Mike Liu raised his hand and he said, just change the pronouns. Women have been doing it for years. <laughs> and so a, a lot of men did just change the pronouns. Okay, yeah. But I, I understand that the people who talk about writing not being therapeutic, um, I think that the thing that I would say about that is is that um, it it can when you're dealing with difficult material, it can take a lot out of you. Um, right. And uh, if you choose to engage with difficult material, uh, you're 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 willing to go into hard places. Um, my my wife was asking me last night how I was dealing with feelings and and thoughts around the uh, devastation that is happening in the Middle East. Yeah, and um, I said. Uh, that you know, I didn't think I was dealing with it very well, but uh, but I am writing about it some. But you know, to 
there's a temptation that many of us face a lot of the time not to dwell too much in really, really difficult things so that we can enjoy the life that we have and what's good For about sure. the life that we have. As, a, as an artist, uh, as a poet, as a writer, when I go into those difficult places, I don't. I don't know if I would call it therapeutic. Uh, it's it's it hard, is. and it's painful, and it doesn't make me feel better. Um, it it does make me feel more uh, alive. Um, there's there's a uh, Jericho Brown, the great poet Jericho Brown, said something that I, I think I can quote fairly close. Um, he said, all poetry is going to do is make you feel better. You're going to feel everything better. Uh, you're going mm. to feel your pain better. You're going to feel your joy better. Uh, you're going to feel everything better. Um, and I think that's true. So, you know, is that therapeutic? Um, maybe in the deepest sense, but not in the superficial sense of I'm going to write this and then I'm going to feel better. Yeah. They they also say that about, you know, meditation of like, oh, the goal shouldn't be, you know, I, I want to feel better at the end of this. Um, exactly. You know, sometimes it's difficult. Um, you, you mentioned the workshops you've done in prison. And I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm curious how how that went, how you approached that. Did you have any um, did you like modify how you normally do your workshop at all? Did you say, okay, you know, I wonder what kinds of poems these people would want to like be exposed to? Um, had you worked with inmates before? Um, I know it's a lot of questions to throw you once, but yes. um, yeah, I had I hadn't worked with incarcerated people before. I felt pretty confident about the relationship parts because I had worked with so many people in in so many rough circumstances um but what i was really concerned about was choosing the right poems to bring in the for the first week because that would be our introduction to each other and i i just struggled over what is going to really speak to them and um a lot of people gave me advice to bring in poems about being in prison um and that isn't what i wanted to do uh, yeah. and finally i i chose a poem uh by uh joe millar called soul custody that uh, i hate to say what a poem is about but it, it's right. about a it's about a single father coming home after work to his son and their interaction that night and i thought this is this is, a, I, I love this poem. I mean, I'm a woman and I love this poem, but I felt like this is a good man's poem. I mean, that, mm. that this is something that somebody could relate to, a man could relate to. Uh, and, um, it, but it took me weeks to figure out what poem I was going to bring in, but I felt confident with that poem. And I, I didn't plan on changing how I usually do things very much. I thought I would go in, I would, share the poem with them. I would talk about the poem a bit, um, point out things in the poem to them, 
and then engage them in discussion, and then they would write. But uh, I got there and I read the poem, and uh, before I could start to talk about what I observed in the poem, the men started offering out what they observed. Uh, hmm. They weren't. They they didn't. They didn't know. You know. They weren't reticent the way uh, I find people coming to a workshop often are reticent in the beginning. They just yes. they just jumped right in and they were very smart and started pointing out everything they saw in the poem. They started pointing out the metaphors. They started pointing out the leaps. They I mean they were they were just uh, their enthusiasm and uh, ability just you know, almost made me laugh because I didn't really need to say anything. And two of the men got into a, an argument about syntax. Um, they didn't, they weren't using that word, but it was essentially that, you know, yeah. they interpreted it. If you read it this way, it would be like this. And if you read it that way, it'd be like that. And they were arguing over this, what the syntax was, you know, saying how it should be. And I, I, it was, you know, it was really, um, uh, funny um i mean i wasn't going to like laugh because they were they were fierce about it and you know finally i just said well you know i think that um there really are two ways to uh to read this and um you know sometimes in poems there isn't just one way to read it i mean i thought there really was one way in this line but i, but I thought that was going to be the most diplomatic thing to say and yeah. they, they bought that that was okay with them and, uh, and, and, you know, they wrote, they shared with each other. They were, um, they were very uh, tender with each other, very appreciative of, of each other's uh, uh, vulnerability and, and what, they, what they shared. I mean, it was, it's a very beautiful experience uh, teaching there. And that and... workshop, I'm not teaching there anymore, but that workshop, uh, still is going on as well with with other teachers. You, you said something in there like, oh, I thought there was there was only one way to to read this, and this is something that a lot of people in sort of popular discourse about art, it's like, hey, you know, it means whatever you want it to mean, sort of thing. Does that rub you the wrong way on any level? Well, certain, <clears throat> cer I mean, certain lines in a poem, if you read them. Uh, you know, according to their syntax and punctuation, um, you know, it's clear who's saying what. Um, it, you know, how you interpret something is different. I think that, you know, what the poem means to you, how you interpret it, even what you remember of it, uh, you know, it's going to be so individual. And I don't think any two people will have exactly the same experience. But, you know, certain things, you know, are straightforward. Uh, and and right. this, this, this was actually pretty straightforward. But, I um, but I could see, I could see the point of, of the uh, other man. And I loved, I, I just couldn't believe and loved that, that uh, they cared so much that they were going to be arguing about it. Yeah. For sure. You know, I mean, you could say, well, you know, obviously, if you're in that situation of, of having to live in a prison, you're going to have 
a lot of strong feelings that have nowhere to go. But uh, even if that's true, how wonderful to channel them through poems. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, way better than so many other outlets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um, I, I, I wanted to ask you about you, you got your MFA, correct? Um, OK, well, it, I got it so long ago that there was no F in it. It was called an MA back then. It was 19, 1970 from Boston University. Wow. Um, I, I had talked to this uh, like on the subject of MFAs um, and, and what you had mentioned earlier about, you know, there are so many poets today. Um, I talked to this um, this fellow, uh, William Derezowitz, and he uh, I don't know if you know, but he he wrote this book about um, sort of the different paradigms for um, uh, for artists throughout history. And there's, you know, the time where you had like, um, you know, artisans and you had like uh, patrons where someone might support your work. Um, and then there was sort of the professionalization with MFAs. Uh, and now we have this like Internet paradigm where people have to be content creators, et cetera. Um, do you, uh, do, do you feel like you, you know, classic complaint about MFAs is like, oh, Shakespeare never got one. Uh, do you, do you feel like you, besides the connections with people, do you feel like you got something out of it as like a poet where you're like, oh, I would have been a totally different writer were it not for this? Oh, I think it was really important. Um, and I, I teach in an MFA. It was very important to me. I had the great good fortune to study with Anne Sexton. Um, yeah. That was that was worth everything. Um, was she your teacher or fellow student? No, she was my teacher. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. She was my teacher. Um, she was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And uh, I teach in a low res. MFA program now at Pacific University up in Oregon. And I, I think that there are people who really can be self-taught. Um, they, they are uh, autodidacts. They, they know how to teach themselves and they don't need teachers. Uh, and if you have, for example, a mentor who is just exactly right for you, then you wouldn't need a program either. But those are very hard to find, um, you know, a, a really in-depth mentor. Um, I think that MFA programs that, that, are, that are good ones um, are really, really a great way to learn because uh, most of us, and myself included, I really didn't know how to learn. Um, I really needed, needed a, a, a lot of support uh, in, in learning how to learn. And I know that the students who I work with uh, in, in the MFA program have so much stronger skill set when they come out than when they went in. Yeah. I, I, I think that um, I think that it's a tricky thing how people look at all of these um, arts. You know, I don't I don't think anybody 
would ever say to somebody trying to learn to be uh, to play the piano that they shouldn't right. have a teacher. I don't think anybody would say, well, you know, um, you know, Mozart sat down at, you know, what, five years old or something. Um, you know, I just don't think, I, I just don't think they would, uh, they would approach other arts quite the same way. But That's... Because, because we, we write naturally, you know, we all write, you know, yeah. we, we write letters, we write emails, we write, uh, uh, shopping lists you know we just write all the time um there's this idea that there's doesn't we don't need to be taught we should be able to just kind of do it but um no i i think that uh that good mfa programs are very very valuable yeah i i hear what you're saying um i i feel like with something like piano it's like people would say okay yes you need to be taught in order to like understand technique and things like that uh but no one can quite teach you how to like write a song um and like famously a lot of like the beatles etc uh and and you know pop musicians uh didn't know how to like read sheet music um i i guess the and we've had i i think for people who like play piano there's always been piano tutors um but for like most of like writing history, there hasn't been um, like an MFA style program. And so I, and I do understand why people are skeptical of it with that in mind. And also because for a lot of programs, they are like quite expensive and I can understand people being like, well, hang on. Like, do I really have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to learn how to, you know, do blah, blah, blah. Um, but man, Ann Sexton, that, that must've been, did, did you rec was she at this time that you met oh, her yeah. ready like oh yeah yeah she was at the height of her powers yeah wow. oh I, I hear what you're saying and um i mean the financial aspect of it of course can be really really daunting the, i guess i have a couple of things um <clears throat> the right environments can grow things that can't grow outside of the right environments. So for example, a, an organization like Cave Canem, um, which is the uh, community of black writers that Toy Derricotte and Cornelius Eady started, um, has the, the number of just superb, extraordinary, amazing black poets that have come through that program is staggering. Yeah. and has, I think, changed the face of American poetry. Um, it's not an MFA program, uh, but it, it's a, it's a it, you know, a community of learning. So I think that we can't always do things on our own. Um, and we do have an MFA industry now, that's for sure. And I think that if people go into an MFA with the idea that then it's going to open up all the doors that they want opened, that could be a problem because it might not. Yeah. But if they go in, you know, the way I tend to go into things, which is, you know, this is a place 
for me to learn more. And then we're going to see what happens uh, because I want to be a better poet. And I, then they're, they're not going to be disappointed. Um, so I, I, I can see both sides of what people talk about around that. I mean, one of the reasons that I started to teach online with these uh, living room craft talks is that it is difficult to get the kind of teaching that you might get in an MFA program outside of an MFA program. Right. And uh, when when the pandemic hit, uh, I had a book that was published in March of 2020. Uh, so you know my whole book tour was crashed, and you know all my teaching was crashed, and uh, you know my wife said, well you know why don't you why don't you you know, do this online. Why don't you offer craft talks online? Because you're really, really good at it. And uh, it's it's so hard for people to find this. And uh, so that's where they, that's where they originated. And, you know, what I try and do there is to talk to um, kind of, uh, you know, teach to the highest denominator um, that, mm -hmm. Uh, one of my um, one of my kind of uh, Marie Hal calls it um, you know like your superpowers uh, you know we all have a couple of superpowers and one of my superpowers is that I can talk about very complex things in clear accessible language so one of the things that, that I love doing in these talks is to be able to get very deep and to talk about very complex things and uh, very detailed things about poetry, but to be able to talk about them so that it is interesting to people who are very knowledgeable, but also very accessible to people who are just beginning, or maybe who even aren't writing poetry, but just wanna read poetry, um, mm -hmm. you know, with, with more understanding. So um, that's, been, that's been really wonderful. And the talks are, very reasonably priced and then beyond that uh there because it is online i can offer scholarships to anybody who wants one so that they become mm -hmm. ultimately accessible that way yeah. um, all people have to do is write and say they need a scholarship and why and they get one so um i love being able to do this and i'm going to start my sixth series of them in uh, March of 2024. Um, and the, people can find out more about them. I would love for you to find out more about them uh, yeah. on my website. It's just my name, ellenbass.com. And um, sign up for my mailing list so you can hear about them when they come. You can, you can uh, attend the ones that I've already given because they're recorded. And really, um, they, they are uh, MFA level teaching. That's fantastic. Um, so living room craft talks. And is this like what you said, it starts in March again, uh, this yeah. sort of upcoming series. Is it like an ongoing thing that people do? Uh, no, it's very, it's very <laughs> limited. Uh, each series is limited. Each series is uh, six sessions. Um, and each session is about two or two and a half hours each. And I, I offer them 
West Coast time Friday mornings, but they're recorded so many people don't watch them at the exact time they watch them, you know, yes. later that day or on the weekend or whenever is convenient for them. Um, I also have guest poets visiting and for this series, as always, we've got an amazing lineup of Billy Collins, Arthur Z, uh, Nikki Finney, Patricia Smith, Carolyn Frechet, and Maria Popova. So um, they, the guest poets come in, they talk a little bit, we talk together, and uh, the topics are different for each session and each series. And these topics are gonna be science and poetry, uh, juxtaposition in poetry, location, uh, the, where you locate your poem and the advantages that gives you, persona when you talk in the voice of someone else, endings, which is maybe the most important thing, <laughs> how you end the poem, oh. and um, and using things uh, uh, in, in your poems, poems that focus on uh, actual physical things, the things of the world. So, mm. uh, and of course, when we do that, we talk about everything else too, metaphor and, and syntax and image and the line and uh, form and all of that. But these are the things that I'll be mostly focusing on. Interesting. So do people, when they tune in, do they share their poems or is it, no. I see no, it's a webinar and the people aren't on, on the screen. Just, I, I'm the yeah. only one on the screen and then the visiting poet when they come in and visit. Um, and so we look at just exemplary, fab fabulous poems that uh, are examples of the uh, aspects of the craft that I'm talking about. And I do close readings of those poems. I quote from other people who have talked about either those poems or the topics. Uh, and I share my own uh, reflections on uh, mm. these topics and sometimes my own uh, struggles of, you, you know, what it, I, I was a very, very, I am, not was, I continue to be a very, very slow learner uh, in terms of learning to write stronger poems and because I was a slow learner and I had to learn everything you know it didn't yeah. things come naturally to you you know if you say to somebody well how did you write this poem and they say well I just sat down and it happened um, yeah. that's really great for you but it doesn't teach you anything about how you might work to write your own poem but because I really had to take everything apart a lot of times uh, in order to write my own poems i'm i'm very good at at breaking down uh you know how i learned what i struggled with um how i approached it you know what didn't work and didn't work and didn't work and then how it did work so that i can i can talk people through some of that and and demystify some of the work that goes into it yeah that sounds fantastic like that, that's the sort of thing that um Mo it, it's not like geographically bound so you don't have to like you could be anywhere and anywhere. just like yeah you know. i know i have a huge <laughs> contingent from india i don't know how that happened but many many people from india you, you know they had um 
this is a few months ago, I guess, but uh, they had this massive poetry festival in India. I think it's like one of the biggest poetry festival festivals in the world. It's like hundreds of thousands of people show up and, uh, you know, people are reading all kinds of poems, stuff like that. So, I mean, we, we don't have anything like that in the, in the U S um, so I guess they're, they're into their poetry. Um, you, something you, you said in there about the becoming a, a slow learner, being a slow learner. Um, it reminds me of this, uh, Kurosawa, uh, great director, uh, quote where he said something like, um, <clears throat> when, when he got the lifetime achievement at the Academy Award, like, uh, uh, like, Oh, I'm, I'm just sort of starting to realize what cinema could be. Um, do you do you feel that way on any level about poetry? Yeah, totally, totally. What does that mean? Well, I I guess you know for me, um, I wish I could say I'm just starting to get it now. I feel like you know I I still don't get it. Um, that every I I said this before, and I know it's hard. You know, when I talk about this to my students, I know it's really hard for them to totally believe it because I do have a certain number of poems that I think are strong. Um, you know, I've got, I guess, about a dozen poems that the New Yorker published, and I have four pushcart prizes, and you know, some. I'm a chance chancellor emerita of the. Academy of American Poets, you know, you'd think that like this woman knows what she's doing. But the, the real truth is, I feel just as clueless when I'm trying to hammer out some poems. Uh, I mean, some, thank goodness, come a little bit more easily. Um, but some of them, I feel like, my God, I look at this and I go, this is like third grader, you know, I mean, you know, yeah. just not getting anywhere here. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, there's a way in which, um, there's a wonderful Rilke quote that I have right by my light switch as I come into my office and it says, if the angel deigns to come, it will be because you have convinced him, not by tears, but by your humble resolve to be always beginning to be a beginner. And mm -hmm. I read that more than once a day uh, because I, I need to be, uh, I need to keep reminding myself that this kind of beginner clueless state is, uh, you know, even though I, I have a certain skill set, I can't always apply it. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I can, I can, I can reliably talk about the aspects of the craft, um, but I can't reliably execute them, uh, you know, into the, onto the next poem. So uh, I have to just keep coming back to the start and, you know, it could sound like I'm being modest or something but i'm just being honest i'm not, I'm not right i wish it were different <laughs> yeah um so we're, we're almost we're almost at an hour or i think we are at an hour here so i don't want to take up too much more of your time but there's something i did want to ask you um as like a sort of a general question because i feel like a lot of particularly uh young artists um 
oftentimes not always but oftentimes like sort of romanticize the uh the the suffering of uh you know whatever they're creating their art um and you mentioned studying under Anne Sexton and like the, the fantastic poet but like not the kind of life and not the kind of way I would want my life to end um do you uh w- was this something you ever it sounds like you're you're just like super chill. <laughs> so like, no, I, I, no, I, I'm, I'm a high strung person who carries sufficient anxiety. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Then we could talk about this. Um, so, is this something that uh, you ever felt like you like a, a sort of a myth of being an artist that you ever had to like distance yourself from? Um, I don't know. How do you feel I about never, this? I never felt <laughs> the impact of that myth. Um, I, I I think that um, I there aren't too many people who don't get their share of suffering. Um, you know, most of us are are not. Uh, you, you know, we we don't get off without it, um, right. and and so. There's, there's certainly plenty of suffering, and I've had sufficient, I hope, in my, you know, in my life. Although there probably be more, um, but the the idea of that being an asset, you know, to being an artist, or that's how artists were supposed to be, um, that's not something that ever was strong for me, and I, I think more than anything. Um, the kind of cult around, you know, Anne Sexton's suicide and Sylvia Plath's suicide and, uh, you know, some other women artists was something that I think right away the feminists were really countering and and saying, you, you know, we want to know these poets for their forms. Uh, we don't want to, you know, make some kind of construction out of their deaths. We, you know, we, we really right. want to focus on their poems, and that's something that I felt very strongly. And and I think uh, I think Florence was was probably a, you know a strong influence for me there too of of. Um, you know that that she had had people close to her um, commit suicide, and was was all for living and her her cure for uh, depression was always work, and so mm-hmm. she she taught me that it's better to be stressed because you're working too much than to be bored. Sure. And, and that that work was the cure for anything for her. And it still feels like that to me, you know, when I'm really, really distressed about something, if I sit myself down in my office and start to work, uh, then it's like, well, this is the place that I know really well, you know, it, it, I, I'm not, um, not familiar with people who ride horses or, you know, herd cattle, but 
it seems to me, you know, if somebody has maybe been herding cattle their whole life and it really literally in the saddle, um, right? You, you know, that they must have a certain feeling when they get on the horse in that saddle. You know, it's like, oh, this is, I know what this feels like. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel like when I sit down at my desk going, oh, I know this, this is, this is in a way my safe place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting subject because I, I definitely don't think you have to be like, damaged in any way to like create good art um maybe like obsessed would be like the closest thing um and like obsession is like kind of a neurotic trait and neurotic traits oftentimes bring friends and um so yeah i, I think that makes is, obsession is good in fact <clears throat> in one of the craft talks i have a whole a whole week on obsession oh nice <laughs> yes yeah it's a real advantage for a poet to have an obsession why do you say that? Well, then you've just got, you know, a deep stream, a deep river, you know, that you can just work in um, and and follow that obsession and get get deeper and deeper into it. You know, that's where your passion is. 100%. Um, well, look, I, I feel like we could keep talking, but it's I don't wonderful. want to take it. But... Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're friends. <laughs> <laughs> um the so your website is ellenbass.com uh living room craft talks signups are open now for march yes okay they are they're open now please please go to the website please uh sign up for my mailing list i do not bombard you you'll only get uh a, a newsletter every other week and a few times during the year notice of of uh these talks and workshops so you won't get a ton into your inbox but if you are um if you are a writer and you you are looking for places to submit your work uh, i do include that in in my newsletters things that come across my screen that i think you might be interested in and so yes and if you need a scholarship ask for one because we really want to make these accessible to anybody who wants to come and if you're if you're not a poet but you're a writer uh, you might really like to come because it's a wonderful poetry is just a wonderful way for many prose writers have found to really pay just more minute attention to language yeah definitely um ellen every time that i i have a poet on i'm like man i need to do this more often uh, it's been a long time, so I really appreciate talking uh, to you, oh, of all poets. It's been wonderful um, to talk to you, Duncan. Thanks so yeah. much for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, and take care. Have a lovely rest of your day. You too. Thank you to Ellen Bass, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.